0: To the book of 1 Peter. In about a month, my wife and I get to take a vacation together to celebrate her birthday, last year's birthday. But, guys, better late than never, right? We are looking forward to going on this trip. We enjoy being together and exploring and taking adventures, seeing new things, enjoying God's creation, and eating food. My wife is also going to visit her dad and stepmom later this year. They live in southern Arizona. That's where we moved from about 15 years ago. And on that trip, she's excited to get to see her family, some of whom she hasn't seen in a while and also some very good friends of ours from our time when we lived there. And then finally, I'm going to be taking a trip with my youngest daughter, who's getting ready to go to college. She's close to making a decision about her schooling, and this trip will help us to discern the leading of the Lord. So we have a busy spring, taking many trips and going to lots of different places. Fun, family, and planning our future. But as exciting as trips like these can be, maybe you've planned a vacation for yourself this winter, I don't know. More than visiting family and friends, more than figuring out what your future is going to be, there is a journey which exclusively focuses on God. As a follower of Jesus, this journey with God is the most important trip that you will ever take. But it's easy to forget when you're bogged down with planning to go here or there or to do this or to do that. And then when you add life's problems to your plans, it gets even more complicated. Challenges in your family life, maybe you struggle with your relationship with your parents as a teenager or as a student. Perhaps you're having difficulty figuring out your purpose in life or your job, a living situation. Perhaps your marriage is in crisis. I think this is one reason why church is important. Church is the family of God, and we're actually on this journey together. And by coming to the gathering of God's people, remember church is a people, not a building. We call this the church house because it's where the church meets. By meeting together with other Christians, we're reminded of some key truths. You're not alone, for one. The things that you're going through are not unique to you and neither are you alone in your sin there are other people just as messed up or more than you are and you're also reminded that you're going somewhere that there's more to life than this life and you need to keep your eyes on the road i also think it's why we have the bible and why in particular the little letter of first peter is in the bible because This letter, in many ways, is a help to Christians who are trying to stay focused on their journey with God with lots of other distractions available. And you are distracted, trust me. So as we begun this study in 1 Peter, the Lord has a very helpful message for you today. It's at the beginning of the year, too, which is extra helpful. The message is this. Your life is about taking a journey with God. And we're going to learn three important truths about that journey this morning. But first I want to begin by reading God's Word. We're reading the same portion as last week, but this is a second kind of an introductory message that gives us a picture of the whole letter of, of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is God's eternal Word. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning's message that we will be reminded about some important truths about our journey with God. I'm not sure if everyone here is on that journey. Some may be involved in taking a trip simply for their own pleasure or living in denial of the work that you're doing in their lives or in the world. So Father, I pray that The words of my mouth and the meditations on each one of our hearts, no matter where we are in this journey, would be pleasing in your sight, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're on a journey with God. We're taking a journey with God today. And the first important truth about this journey is that your journey with God makes you distinct. It makes you different. We see this in our text in verse 1, in Peter's opening sentence, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, right there, we know that Peter has undergone a life change because if you know anything about the life of Peter, he wasn't always an apostle. He didn't pop out of the womb, kind of ready to roll in Jesus' band. Rather, he was a, a rough, rough around the edges kind of a guy. He was a fisherman. And here we read him openly and boldly proclaiming his identity as a follower, and as an emissary, a missionary for Jesus. Made some different. He's different. And he's writing to those who are different, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, he says. Two important terms here that we want to get our arms around. One we saw last week, chosen or elect. This makes these people very special to God because they have been chosen or elected by God in his eternal foreknowledge, before the world began. So they've been set apart then by God's loving choice, and then they've been sanctified in time by the, by the application of the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn more about this, the, the teaching of Scripture regarding regeneration next week. So they've been set apart by God in, in a special way. We saw this last week. But the result is that they have become, by their election, they have become exiles. So the picture is this. They were undifferentiated from the society, from the family that they lived in, from the people in their neighborhood, from the the Roman Empire, in in this case. They they looked and acted in many ways just like their neighbors, just like their friends, just like their uh, schoolmates. Identical. But by the elect foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit, They have been lifted out of that old way and they've been made different and placed on a journey with God. So the word exile is the word that pertains to someone who's staying for a while in a strange place. If you're in exile, your citizenship is not where you live. It's elsewhere. And if you're in exile or a sojourner, your heart is always wanting to go home. It's always wanting to go home to go home. So lacking citizenship in the place where you live, according to one commentator, Karen Jobs, means that you do not enjoy all the rights and privileges of citizens. It also can mean that you're a temporary resident, a sojourner, or someone who's traveling through a place, but not staying in that place. I think this reminds us, because Peter is writing to exiles, not just in the first century but in the 21st century, it reminds us that when we're not home, we have to be careful. Things aren't done the way that they're done at home. You kind of got to watch your step a little bit. Watch what you say. The jokes don't sound the same. The, the traditions aren't the same. People might look at you funny. You need to be cautious. and. In some senses, you need to try to fit in. But you also can't fit in too much, because this isn't your place. And if you, if you made it your home and fit in in every single way, it'd be a betrayal of your homeland. So you can expect that being different will cause people to treat you different as well. But despite such treatment, and in spite of your destination, <coughs> this doesn't mean that you can just isolate yourself either. Sometimes sojourners or exiles, people who are immigrants or aren't from the place, they, they really uh, enjoy, understandably, seeing people like themselves and hanging out with people just like themselves. But this can lead to an isolation mindset, even something that some have called a fortress mindset, where you're only staying where it's safe, and doing what is safe. Jesus warns us about this when he says that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. In his high priestly prayer, here's what he says. I do not pray, Father, that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. This is a very subtle dynamic here. Jesus understands that his disciples, that everyone who follows him, are on a journey with him. And they're called to stay focused on that journey and and to not be distracted. And so, being kept from the evil one is a phrase which means, Lord, don't tempt my people to get off the road, the narrow path of following me. But also, don't let them isolate. Don't let them build a fortress, dig a moat around the castle and pull up the gates. Don't let them live as if they're not in the world because they're called to be in the world still. Elsewhere, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. His his plan for you is not to remove you from the problems of life. And every time you hit a problem, you say, why is this happening to me? You betray a little bit of your unbelief. It's as if someone sold you a bill of goods and said, the journey with God... The walk with the Lord in this life is going to be easy, but it's not. Jesus said so. He said, In this world, you will have trouble. I'm not going to take away the trouble, he said, but take heart. I've overcome the world. You will experience victory, just perhaps not in your own time frame. This idea about being on a journey with God and being in the world and not of the world reminds me of a joke I heard once. uh, a man stands before the pearly gates, and there are such things as pearly gates in heaven. It's just not St. Peter who guards them, it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Anyway, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to theologically dissect my joke, because that will kill the joke. <laughs> I probably already killed the joke, but here we go. So he gets to the pearly gates, and St. Peter says, uh, what's your name? And he tells him his name, he looks down the list. And his name's not on the list. And the guy goes, what, what do you mean? I was, a, I was just the, the biggest advocate for you. I was always evangelizing telling everybody about Jesus everywhere I went. Peter says, yeah, but you forgot the part about being a jerk about it. So he knew he was on a journey with God, but he made no effort to fit in. He made no effort to befriend people. He made no effort to show the love and the life of Christ with the people around him. You have a new distinct status, but it's nuanced, it's complex. It's a status that has placed you on a journey with God and makes it impossible for you to fit in, and yet you're called to be an exemplary human being, which is the best way to live around your other fellow humans. It's what God has done for you, his special treatment of you that has made you different, both in the first century in Rome and today in South Jersey. We're gonna learn more about this difference next week in a study on regeneration or the new birth. But for now, I want to remind you that you become distinct from others around you. You're a sojourner in this society, but you're not to act so different that people can't relate to you because part of your job is to show them that the place that you're headed is the best place to go. This theme comes up elsewhere in First Peter, the distinctiveness or the difference of being a follower of Christ. Look at First Peter 1, verse 15. As he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then in verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So Peter is making very clear that holiness and your family tradition are things that don't go together, that the futile ways inherited from your forefathers are very much not what you should be doing. And yet, when you gather with family, Your holiness should be the kind of holiness that draws people in and helps them to see that living a different kind of life might be the best way to live. So your journey with God makes you distinct. Second, The second truth about this journey is that not only is your journey something that makes you unique or different than others around you, it's one which requires a change. Your journey with God with God requires a change. I thought of this illustration in the marriage ceremony. When I performed a wedding ceremony, even in my own ceremony, there's the traditional vows that so many of us have used. And one of the promises of marriage is that you can't go on living like you did before. Marriage is a new condition which requires new behaviors. And this comes out in one of the line of the vows, which is important. It's the phrase, forsaking all others to forsake is to leave someone behind and so the picture is that you've got a group of friends men and women before you're married and you have a certain relationship with those people and when you get married your relationship with those people has to change even in the case of good relationships i'll never forget my wife's best friend when she got married Um, her best friend Judy, didn't know how to be friends with Polly. It it requires a transition. Now, by God's grace, Polly was able to maintain that friendship, and she's just as close to Judy as ever, though Judy is is a long ways away. She's a missionary with her family in Taiwan. But it requires a change. But what if it isn't Judy, but Joey we're talking about? So that requires a change, too, for, for Polly. Particularly if Joey was a former boyfriend. You follow where I'm going with this. So that, that example is, is showing you that in marriage, it requires you to make a change. You can't continue your life in the path that you were on. Things have to be different. Likewise, your journey with God has created a change in your life that requires you to act, think, and live differently before. And some of your friends can't, can't be kept. <laughs> as you start this journey. And a new believer, if you're a new believer in Christ, you may still have a number of non-Christian friends. One of the sad things about this, by the way, is that we take it too far. We wind up hanging out with Christians, this fortress mentality I was talking about a moment ago, and all of a sudden, we don't have any more non-Christian friends that we can talk to or, or hang out with or even learn from. Do you have someone who's not a believer that's in your life on a regular basis that you would consider a friend. So I'm saying you need to forsake all others in the sense that the non-Christian friends that are dragging you down and that are swallowing up your testimony and stealing your Christian joy, yes, those you need to forsake. But others God has strategically placed in your life, not that you would cut them off, I'm a Christian, I can't hang out with unbelievers anymore. No, he's put them in your life so that you might show them the love of the Lord. You may be the very one that God has chosen to bring the gospel into their lives. So there's a lot of change described in Peter's description of your journey with God. I mentioned 1 Peter 1, 2 and the idea of being sanctified already last week. I mentioned uh, 1 Peter 1:15 and 16 and the call to be holy just a moment ago. Holiness is worth talking about. What, what does it mean to be holy? Well, to be holy means to be set apart or to be special. And there are specific things in your life on your journey with God that you are to treat in a holy or a special manner. First and foremost, which comes to my mind, is the Bible, God's God's Word. It's sometimes called the Holy Bible. In fact, that's what's on my Bible, the Holy Bible. How do you treat the Bible as holy? How is it special in your life? Well... What book do you read every single day? A holy book. Now, I'm not talking about if you're cramming for your calculus final. But I'm talking about your devotions to God. And if you're going to be holy, you're going to spend time in the holy book. Now, my, my plan this year, as I mentioned during the announcements, is to read one chapter in the New Testament a day. About one chapter. And I... I've cut myself some slack, so two or three days a month, I get a freebie. So being holy doesn't require you to sort of, you know, read 46 chapters a day for the first six hours, starting at four in the morning or whatever. You you have a special way where God wants you to be in His Word, and I'm not sure what it is, but I do know it's His will for you to treat His Word holy. Another way, and, and you're actually... Right now, accomplishing the second way to be holy, this is the change. Your life can't go on the same in the journey with God. Another way to be holy is, do you know what it is? The Lord's day. The fourth commandment says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now there's a lot of debate between Christians about what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. But here's one thing, that it absolutely has to mean. You need to go to church on Sunday. And I would say in person, if at all possible. It's not enough just to check it out online, although we're grateful for technology. I'm concerned that the technology that we have introduced into the church at large has caused a disruption in people's sanctifying of the Sabbath. It's a lot easier to look look at it at my breakfast table and in some ways a lot more fun. I'm in my jammies. I'm eating cereal, and I'm also checking the sports scores, you know, and I'm in, I'm out of there. So sanctifying the Lord's day means being in church with other Christians, if at all possible. I am giving you that little escape route. It's not like we have to be here under any and all circumstances. I got a text this morning that my assistant and her family are sick. Awesome. Awesome. If they're tuning in, I thank God for that. But but, uh, 52 Sundays a year, you should make it your habit to be in church. On vacation as well. We're going on vacation, I mentioned my wife and I. You know what we're going to do on vacation? We're going to visit a church. And we don't consider this like our duty or responsibility, although it's possible to think of it that way. We're really looking forward to visiting another church and to... Meeting some other Christians in another part of the country and maybe making some new friends and being encouraged to see what God is doing in another fellowship. Holy means to sanctify the Lord's day. And the last thing I'll mention about holiness is setting aside or hallowing God's name. We say this in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. To hallow something is just the old language Of making something holy. You know, the name of God is holy. So we shouldn't say it when we cuss, like you hit your thumb with a hammer or you drop your brand new phone and the screen cracks and out pops a choice word. We need to avoid using empty, meaningless, derogatory language, particularly when it involves the name of God or his son, Jesus Christ. But Taking God's name in vain is more than the prohibition against cussing. I've, I've taught this before from this pulpit. Taking God's name in vain is anything whereby he has, has revealed himself. So when you mistreat your spouse, when you yell or, or, or are angry at or say critical things or call names to your spouse, not that I would ever do that, but I've heard some of you do that. And I'm very ashamed of you for doing that. Um, When you do this, you're taking God's name in vain because your wife, your husband, has been baptized in the name of Christ. Dads, if you yell at your daughter or your son, that child is a baptized child of the covenant. The name of God is on her or on him. And I won't mention anything about uh, abusive behavior, which goes beyond that sort of verbal mistreatment. Holy. Holy. Because God has made you holy, you're distinct, he's entered into a relationship with you, you can't go on living the same way. You can't. What you watch, what you listen to, who you associate with, you need to think about these things. Frederick Donker, a scholar, put it this way, Peter makes an intimate connection between the status of the addressees as virtual visitors in the world because of their special relationship to God through Christ and their moral responsibility. Who you are determines how you are to live. It's important for your journey with God. My third point, the third truth about your journey with God, first of all, it makes you distinct Second of all, it requires a change. My third point is this. Your journey with God comes at a cost. And I've I've built that into what I've said so far. Because what we're talking about, these changes and this new identity, is costly. It's hard. And I'm regularly, you know, to use an illustration, opening up my wall, looking at how much cash I have in here. Can I afford this Christian activity that i'm about to do so often i'm like man that's way too expensive i can't afford to do that and what god is telling me again and again is you can it's costly but you must peter would know the cost of following jesus because he's the one who tried to prevent jesus from going to the cross it blew his mind that christ would hang on a bloody roman cross in Jerusalem at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Roman uh, authorities. He literally grabbed Jesus. It doesn't tell us this, but in my mind, he grabbed him by the shoulder, and he says, you will not go to Jerusalem. Jesus has just predicted his death. Of course, Jesus always remains calm, cool, and collected. Well, mostly remains calm, cool, and collected. He looks at Peter, one eye squinted, And he says, get behind me, Satan. He calls him the devil. Of course, Satan, satanas, means enemy. And Satan is the chief enemy. But Peter had fairly well lined himself up with the enemy of souls by trying to prevent Jesus from paying the cost on Jesus' journey with God. And so heinous was that to our our Lord Jesus Christ that he called the number one disciple, Satan. Peter had to learn this. But by the time he gets to this letter, he does learn. He was confused at the time. He thought his journey with Jesus would result in an amazing, smashing victory. We're going to blow him out of the water. Once we get to Jerusalem, let the rebellion begin. The coup is well underway. But no, now he was learning that the journey with Jesus was gonna come at a cost, a very high cost. His old way of thinking made him an enemy to Christ. Historian Paul Holloway notes that in the first century Roman Empire, there was an underlying current of social prejudice which Christians had to continually deal with. He thinks it was only at sporadic intervals that serious acts of violence broke out against believers. But it was a steady state of opposition, a low-grade fever. Have you ever had a low like for weeks and weeks? Some of you are dealing with the cough or this flu, just it hangs on. We have uh, long-haul influenza, I guess, this season. Christians in early Rome and Jews, for that matter, were regularly dealt blow after a soft blow after a soft blow against their faith. There was a cost. It wasn't easy. I want to give you two examples. I, there are a dozen examples I could give. Here's two. A pagan husband, according to an ancient writer, uh, a, a, his wife, a woman, was converted to Christianity. And then she tries to share the gospel with her husband. And sharing the love and light of Christ with her unbelieving husband the husband was not only unreceptive to her, her, her appeals for him to trust in Christ. I know most of us as guys, we really listen to our wives when we, they plead with us to live like Christians. But this guy didn't. Not only that, though, he accused his wife to the authorities and then presented her with a bill of divorce. Divorce. That's the suffering that she experienced for her faith. A second example. This relates to uh, joining clubs and uh, labor unions in ancient Rome. 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4 explains that one reason Peter's readers in Asia Minor were experiencing persecution is that prior to their conversion, some of the members of the churches that he's writing to in this dispersed area some of the members of the churches had been involved in certain activities or institutions called collegia or the imperial cult what does that mean it's basically like a political party except you had to join and if you didn't join and joining by the way the imperial cult in particular means you bring a fruit basket or other sacrifices to the local shrine or temple to the current reigning uh Roman emperor. And then there are various other sort of satellites, Roman dignitaries that had to be honored in certain ways. And the collegia were like ancient labor unions that required similar sacrifices to Roman gods, Jupiter and Zeus and so forth. When they were converted, the Christians could no longer bring sacrifices to the imperial cult or as part of their labor union. But if they didn't, they would be treated either as a traitor or lose their job or both. And so they had to be very careful in how they maneuvered this situation. And in some cases, there were Roman practices which were called for by Christians. And we'll see this in a few weeks. We'll get to the command in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 where it says, Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Claudius... Tiberius, Nero. I don't know if you know anything about these individuals. But even in their efforts to be patriotic, Peter says, be, pa- be a patriot, be a good Roman citizen, honor the emperor. No Roman citizen is looking at a Christian with trust. Oh, you, you're not one of us. No. You're not going to get the promotion. You're not going to be given that position. You're not going to be invited to the party. You're not going to be involved in the networking, and, and you're not going to hang out with the people who are influencers, the most influential 40 under 40. That's not you. I don't know if you have any trips planned this year or not. My family and I were looking forward to the trips that we planned, but one thing's for sure. We're not going to allow our earthly journeys whether it's to vacation or to visit families, family members, friends, or in planning my daughter's future. We're not going to allow any of those trips to throw us off our journey with God. Now, we're not perfect, and we may well get into an argument within five minutes of getting to the airport or hopping in the car. But the journey with God is way too important for even a setback like that to allow us to, to lose our way. This literally is the trip of your life. But how do you stay on track? Jesus calls it the narrow way, and apparently it's hard to find. A lot of people are traveling a wide, broad road, he says, that leads to destruction. But on your journey with God, there's only a few that find it. Reminds me of looking for a trail in the woods that's not marked. A vivid illustration of suffering in your journey with God is given by one of my favorite authors, Elizabeth Elliot, in her book on loneliness. It's about a hymn writer, George Matheson, who shortly after becoming engaged to be married, he became blind. And as a result of the tragedy, an even greater tragedy happened, his fiance broke off the engagement because she didn't want to marry a blind man. This is what Elizabeth Elliot says, there is no more bitter loneliness than that of rejection. I can sure relate to that. And have you ever felt lonely and rejected? In Matheson's case, though, it was different. Instead of doing what I would have done, which is to turn to resentment and bitterness, to sit in my pain and to feel sorry for myself and ask my friends to do the same thing, what Matheson did is he wrote a poem, a hymn, of such profound beauty that it resonates In my heart, even to this day, I'll read a couple of the lines of the hymn. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Love that will not let me go. Earthly love will abandon us on our journey with God sooner or later. Here's another verse. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that mourn shall tearless be. So Matheson, he's keeping his eye on the destination in spite of the hardships and the setbacks he's experiencing on his journey with God. And then the final verse focuses on Christ. O cross that lifteth up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory, dead. And from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Matheson surely could have abandoned his journey with God, and you and I both know professing Christians who've hit fewer, smaller, less significant setbacks than becoming blind and then having your fiancé break up with you because of that. I've been tempted to give up my faith for less than that. But this great hero of the faith turned his sorrow and suffering back to God and by God's grace remained and even strengthened in his journey. He finds faith to be a crucial component with his journey with God, and so should you. By that I mean, as an exile and a stranger, you cannot walk by what your eyes see. Paul tells us it's the eyes of your heart that need to be enlightened. That requires a spiritual surgery. The Holy Spirit needs to take a scalpel into your heart and open up your eyes in your heart so that you can see him and value what he values and walk with him. Matheson learned, even though his life was presently heart-achingly lonely and painful and filled with suffering, it will not always be this way. It wasn't always this way, and it definitely won't always be this way. So some of you may suffer broken relationships on your journey with God, and it will feel like you're in a wilderness. But Peter is writing to people who are in the wilderness, who feel like they're all alone, that no one cares, that you're not being regarded, that you're being mistreated. That's the diaspora of suffering that is the context of this letter and of all of our lives, which is why we're studying it together. And we're not alone, really. Because Jesus walked through the wilderness. He did it for you. He tasted all of your human infirmities. Maybe not every single one specifically, but every category of temptation, every kind of temptation Jesus experienced. Actually says that in in the scriptures. When he was tempted and tested in the wilderness, it ends by saying in one of the gospels, after he had experienced every temptation There were only three that are recorded, but somehow these three, you should read it Matthew 4. These three temptations very well summarize all of the hardships and the temptations that you may face in life. So Jesus is with you. He's with you when he was alive on the planet, and he's with you now by his Holy Spirit because the Bible says he's seated on a throne of grace, and he's given you his Spirit, which has which has spiritually forged you to him. And so he is the invisible, silent companion with you on your journey with God. 1 Peter 3.22, he was raised from the dead and has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That means nothing in the world can oppose Christ in all of Christ's own. That means you have a great champion with you on your journey with God. So we need to renew our faith in Christ today. That's the message. Renew your faith in Christ. Resolve to follow him. Stay on the path. You may need to lighten your load a little bit. There may be some things that you need to get rid of in your journey with God. I want you to enjoy the journey. Remember, you're not just just you're not just fortressing yourself and sort of clenching your, your teeth and balling up your fist and hanging on for dear life. No, he he wants you to enjoy this journey. Even though you're in exile, we can have a lot of fun with our faith and we should. And I also want you to bring some people with you on your journey. Don't travel alone. Go with the church. This is a great church. I love our church, but you need Christian companions as you travel on your journey with God, but I also want you to share your faith with others and try to bring some new believers, some new followers with you along the way. And may God help us. Let us pray. Father, as we close our time in the word this morning, we thank you that it is is a timely reminder about what our lives are all about. And as we are setting our intentions for this year, whether we're into resolutions or not, Lord, we do need to resolve together and individually as families As singles, as the elderly, Lord, particularly the the young students who are among us, we need to set our intentions this year to live our lives on a journey with God. It's the most important trip. It's the trip of a lifetime. So help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.